Before we get started, a brief reminder that any and all opinions and views shared by hosts and guests on this podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent the views of Primal Kitchen or its affiliates or parent company. Your brain perceives anything new as a threat. So if you visualize something, whether it's a sporting event or, you know, having to stand up and give a speech at a large conference or something, then when you actually experience it for the first time, it's not as new as if you'd never even thought about it before. So it reduces that perception of threat in your brain. So we know that there's a benefit in the brain of visualizing a certain activity, that it correlates with doing that activity. And then if we think about the impact of mind over matter, which is everything from if you say, that's never going to work out for me, it's going to make you more in the stress state than in the kind of trust state, that it has an impact on your body. So how did you get into this just whole like ancient wisdom and like what brought you on this path to what you know about the brain? Well, so that goes way back in that I was brought up in London um, by parents who had just emigrated from India. So I kind of grew up with a mixture of this ancient wisdom. You know, I would come home, my mother would be in a headstand and we would have incense and meditation and I love it. gratitude before eating. We kind of ate Ayurvedic food and but then you know I went to school all my friends were English and I I kind of you know wanted to fit in and lead that life too so I've always kind of had the western and the eastern in my life um then I was let's put it this way very much encouraged by my parents to become a medical doctor in the western tradition um although they continued to practice you know what we'd call alternative therapies in the home and then, um, you know, I was in education for nine years. Yeah. <laughs> so I got to explore different areas of interest. And neuroscience and psychology were definitely the things that I was just attracted to out of pure curiosity. Um, I thought I was going to become a <clears throat> neurologist, but then I became a psychiatrist, which I did for seven years. Really fascinated by how people think, how, you know, that can change your mood, things that you hear. And... I guess one of the issues that I had with it and the reason I eventually moved on is that it wasn't very holistic. So things like diet and exercise and art and mindfulness weren't as much part of it as I would have liked to see. Um, so I moved more into the well-being space through business coaching and then really got to bring the neuroscience into everything and think about brain health and brain body connection and gut brain access. And, you know, that's that's really what I've kind of become that's flourished um, in my personal and professional life. Okay, so since I worked for a food company, right, I'm like so curious, tell me about gut brain access. What do people need to know? Like what are the top three things we should be doing? Okay, so I think let's start with what you need to know. Mm -hmm. So the gut and brain are absolutely intimately connected and it's a two-way thing. So they're connected through nerves, the vagus nerve most famously, but also other nerves. They're connected through hormones and other chemical messages that pass through the blood. Um, and these go both ways. So if you're stressed, you can see leaky gut, bloating, indigestion, you know, change in your bowel habits. And equally, if your gut microbiome, which are all the good bacteria in your gut, are out of, you know, the ideal state, whether that's because of antibiotics, alcohol, processed food, jet lag, then there, there will be a knock-on effect on, on your mood and your brain function and your memory and things like that. So... Because the brain, you know, we don't, we can't see it and we, we aren't always really aware of what we're putting in that's affecting how it functions. It's just easier to focus on your gut health. Um, 
So, okay, you want my top three things of yeah. what I do yeah. for my gut health. So I eat 30 different plant products a week. Um, and that's not just fruits and vegetables. It's anything that came from a plant. So, you know, it includes grains and... Um, nuts, pu- seeds. Seeds, nuts, okay. yeah. Du- coffee, dark Bean. chocolate, beans, yeah. all of that good stuff. Yeah. I like that. I like that dark chocolate is in here. Matcha, I'm a matcha drinker. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, And then varying the color of the vegetable or the foods that you eat. Um, Varying the color, but also focusing on dark skinned foods. So dark skinned foods contain more antioxidants um, called anthocyanins, which promote growth and connection of nerve cells in your brain. Interesting. Yeah. Um, aerobic exercise does that too. And it's also good for your gut. So, you know, I'm going to throw that one in there as a side. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then the third thing I would say, I'm going to keep going with food cause it's you. So yeah, yeah. eating fermented foods. Yeah. So I try to eat sauerkraut or kimchi or kefir or kombucha every day. One okay. of those every day. I love it. Yogurt. Um, I try not to have too much dairy, so okay. I stick with kefir, but yeah, yeah, you could have live yogurt, yeah. Yeah. Are you, like, avoiding any other things besides dairy? Is there anything we shouldn't be doing? Um, besides I, the obvious, right? Yeah, like, besides the obvious. Yeah. I, I just minimize gluten and dairy because I have just listened to my body and yeah. found that that's working for me better now, um, but I don't avoid them. The major change I made around the age of 30 when I started my reverse aging diet was to completely cut out smoked food. Interesting. I'm a migraine sufferer and okay. smoked food is like a trigger, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, do you supplement with magnesium? I do. Yeah. Because that's been shown to be really healthy. I know. Yeah. yeah magnesium, CoQ10, and they say like riboflavin, whatever B yeah. vitamin that is. I can't remember B12 or something like yeah. that. But yeah. Yeah, I do. Magnesium's like does everything. For everything, yeah. I feel like everyone, I mean, I've always been a magnesium person, magnesium citrate. If you have constipation issues, mm-hmm. like that is like the and I'll care, but if you don't, be careful if you yeah. if you end up on the magnesium citrate. But yeah, it is a big magnesium is a big thing. Okay. All right. I like it. Anything else we need to be doing for the gut brain connection? Um, well, seeing as we've mentioned magnesium, which underlies so many different things in the body, neuromuscular junctions, memory, mood, sleep, it's actually best taken through your skin rather than through your gut. So I bathe in magnesium flakes three to five times a week. It. <laughs> I put some of that in my kids' bath. Yeah. Yeah. I just like pour, they put in like handfuls. I don't know if I'm putting in enough or what I'm doing, but I do. I'm a fan. Yeah. But bathing, I mean, it's much more of a British thing than a Well, American it's thing. just like, I'm just thinking, oh, what time, you know? Foot I bath. mean, this is so American. Oh, foot bath. You okay. could do a foot bath. I could yeah. do a foot bath. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. All right. Let's, speaking of that, since I'm like getting all corporate on you, not really corporate, but just like mom, three kids under the age yeah. of five, running a company, like, Probably would have been a great candidate. Are you still doing executive coaching? I would be a great candidate for your executive coaching program on just like, help me, help me here with my migraines and all these things. What do I need to know about stress? Yeah, um, you need to know about it. I mean, I always say knowledge is power. So the more you know, the more you can understand what's going on um, and then the more you can do about it. So basically, depending on your age and your gender, there's a normal range for the stress hormone cortisol. Yeah. And it's part of our 24 hour body clock. So just like melatonin helps us fall asleep, cortisol helps us wake up. I'm sure three little kids under the age of five also help you to wake up yeah. quite frequently. Every day. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, and it's absolutely normal for cortisol to, you know, go up and down between that range. And we have an amazing adaptive stress response, which is that, you know, if there's a deadline, 
if there's a really important interview, then your body releases some cortisol and adrenaline to help you to meet that challenge. But if you're chronically stressed, then the levels of cortisol are high, you know, towards the top of that range or even higher more of the time. And your brain does not like this. It has receptors that are constantly searching out for threat. And a, a way that your brain knows that you're under threat is if your cortisol levels are high all the time. And it's sensing that in the receptors yeah. that check the levels of everything in the blood that goes around your brain. So again, kind of keeping to the food theme, one of the top perceived threats to your survival is starvation. So to help you to get through whatever time you may be you know, low on supplies, cortisol actually helps you to store more fat in your abdominal cells so that you can use that to survive until you find so the like food So like when you're stressed, if cortisol goes up, your body's like, hang on to it. We're in a stressful environment. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And so it's not just normal weight gain all over your body. It's particularly around your belly and it's really hard to shift. So you may notice it and then say, okay, um, I'll move around a bit more. I'll eat a bit less or I'll eat a bit differently, but you still can't shift that weight. That's when you know it's cortisol. Interesting. So what do you do? Um, so look out, then check out for some other potential signs. Because cortisol is part of the 24-hour body clock, sleep disturbance is another sign. Because of the gut-brain axis, any indigestion symptoms are another sign. And obviously there are mood signs like irritability. So what I kind of tend to hear people like you say is that I can just about keep it together at work. But when I get home, if my kids are too demanding, if my spouse isn't understanding, I could just snap. And when you feel like that, it's not, it's only a matter of time till you could actually snap at work. And that's obviously not acceptable. Yeah. Um, so check off all of those, you know, do journaling, write it down, see what your patterns are. And then there's two main, um, you know, therapeutic ways to deal with that. One is aerobic exercise that helps you to sweat cortisol out of your body. And the other one is whether it's through journaling, speaking to a friend or a therapist, is actually speaking out loud the stresses that you're aware of, you know, the negative emotions on your mind and just getting that out of your brain body system and then magnesium. Because when we're stressed, the body leeches us of magnesium and you can't eat enough nuts, seeds, leafy greens to replenish it. You have to supplement. Interesting. Mm. Um, what is this sweating cortisol? Like that's a thing, like you can actually sweat the cortisol out of your body. Yeah, so it's the same mechanism for how women who live together or work closely together oh. synchronize their periods. Yeah, yeah. okay. So um, they're, they're steroid hormones, estrogen, progesterone, cortisol. So they come out of our sweat. And um, cortisol, it doesn't matter if you're male or female, but if, you know, let's say you and I sat together at a desk this closely every day, if you are super stressed by your little, you know, kids and your big job, then you're cortisol particles that you're exuding into the you know air around me would go in through my skin and artificially raise my cortisol levels so I would feel stressed from being around you even if I'm not actually stressed in my own life that's crazy one of my favorite things is like the sign over the door that says please take responsibility for the energy you bring into this room yeah this is that on this is that on yeah cortisol. On literally steroids, steroids. No intended. <laughs> yeah. yeah crazy so we're really picking up everybody else's like energy field in a very proven way. Yeah, we're picking up the words that they say. We're picking up the body language and the, you know, micro muscular changes in the facial expressions. And we're picking up the hormone levels, particularly if they're suppressed. So, you know, as a leader of a business, 
there are times where you have to put on a brave face yeah. and tell everybody that everything's going fine, it's going to be okay. But if you know in your gut that that's not necessarily true, people can pick up on that. Interesting. So you mentioned like talking things out with friends and stuff. Like what's the science behind that? Like emo- like verbally releasing yeah. the emotion, I guess. Yeah. I'm so it's like, is there science behind it? Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of, it's almost like the mental, emotional version of sweating the stress hormone out physically so it's i you know how they say name your emotion so yeah. you know what you're experiencing yeah it's taking it one step further and actually saying you know morgan i'm feeling really stressed and the reason is because you keep giving me these deadlines that i can't possibly keep up with and i feel like i'm letting you down all the time and that you know you're gonna fire me yeah but so once i've said that i actually just feel better because i've said what i'm thinking deep down and then if you say I didn't realize I was making you feel like that. You know, you push back to me when I give you a deadline and, you know, I'm absolutely not thinking of firing you. I value you. Of course, that's going to make me feel better. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That would never happen because we like, I like never fire anyone. <laughs> and all my friends work for us at Primal Kitchen and good. they have for like nine years. And, but anyway, I think I'm like the, they're probably like, Morgan, you've given us no feedback. Like, are we doing a good job or not? And I'm just like, you got it. You're good. I'm like the anti-micromanager, but, um, Okay. Science, there was like an interesting quote I saw from you, or not a quote, but I guess like a little tidbit of information about weightlifting and the study about, I guess, would it be, I don't know if it's visualization or manifestation, but talk to me a little bit about that. Um, Yeah, I wouldn't call, I would call it visualization because in sports psychology, visualization has been a thing for a long time. And so that's for a few reasons. One is that your brain perceives anything new as a threat. So if you visualize something, whether it's a sporting event or, you know, having to stand up and give a speech at a large conference or something, then when you actually experience it for the first time, it's not as new as if you'd never even thought about it before. So it reduces that perception of threat in your brain. Interesting. Um, And also we know from things like, you know, if people are in a coma, that if you say to them imagine carrying out a certain task like imagine playing tennis that similar parts of the brain light up as when we actually play tennis okay so we know that there's a benefit in the brain of visualizing a certain activity that it correlates with doing that activity and then if we think about the impact of mind over matter which is everything from you know if you say that's never going to work out for me that's, you know, it's going to change your posture, it's going to change, it's going to make you more in the stress state than in the kind of trust state, that it has an impact on your body. Um, And a couple of other studies that I'll just mention to lead up to the weight training one. Um, One was actually done in Florida. Um, We have someone from Florida in the room. (laughs) And they did, there was a group of medical students, so young, healthy volunteers, who were asked to walk between five rooms. And there was a table in each room with pieces of paper on it that had a word on each piece of paper and they had to string a sentence out of those words okay now they thought that was the whole experiment but there was a sort of a a trick behind the experiment that they knew about which was that one of the tables had the words beach bungalow walk florida sunshine and for a lot of people in america those words will make you think of retirement and they showed that people walked more slowly out of that room even though they, the groups of people entered the rooms in different orders, 
because just thinking about retirement slows kind of slows down. down. Yeah. Stop it. That's crazy. I know. I know. So, and then on the other hand, there was my favorite experiment. Three groups of people in their 80s. One group, the control group, just lived like normal for a week. One group um, had to reminisce about being in their 60s for a week. So, you know, that week you just thought about, you know, every time you came across a photo or a person, you kind of recalled what it was like um, 20 years ago. And the third group, they were taken to homes that were retrofitted to look like their homes did 20 years ago. If they didn't have the same walking aid or hearing aid or you know visual aid 20 years ago, that was changed to match what they had 20 years ago. They had a photo of themselves in the house that looked, but that was of themselves in their 60s. And they were given newspapers from 20 years ago and asked to live in that scenario for a week. After just one week, the people who lived in the retrofitted homes were taller, stronger, had better musculoskeletal coordination and vision. And in before and after photos of themselves, before they entered that house and one week later, people who didn't know them rated them all as younger in the after photo. Wait, what do you mean retrofitted homes? For homes that were made to look like they were 20 years ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so like they're envisioning themselves like as if they were younger when they were in the They're homes. not envisioning. They they're just in the like environment. That. They are living like that. The second group were remembering being like oh, 20 okay. years ago and the first group didn't change. So the second group also had some improvements, but not as much as the third group. And when I say they were taller, it's because their posture improved. And when I say they were stronger, it's because they did things that they wouldn't do because they would, for example, when they arrived with their suitcase for a week, they expected the crew to take their suitcase to their room. But the crew said, well, no, you're 60 now, so you can carry your own suitcase. So straight from the start, they had to carry a suitcase that normally they'd say, oh, well, I'm an 80-year-old lady. Thanks for carrying my suitcase for me. And they were just told no, so they had to do it. Um, And the musculoskeletal coordination is that you know, their balance improved because yeah. they just, you know, they did things they didn't used to and they just, like, grew their confidence. Um, and, and they literally looked younger after a week. Because it's crazy. Of yeah. There's a lot to unpack in this just about, like, retirement. My dad always says he, like, doesn't want to retire in Florida. Sorry, another Florida shout out. But he's <laughs> like, I want to retire in, like, a college town. Yeah. Like, so do you think there's something to, like, there's a lot to the environment is what I'm picking up on, yeah. perhaps. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot to the environment. Like, but... I'd also say there's something to be said for spending time with people who are 20 years older because of their wisdom. Totally. And also with people who are 20 years younger because that keeps you young. It keeps you up to date with technology and popular culture. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. Okay, now the weightlifting study, the other one about like the muscle growth. Yeah. So this one was... Listen to um, me. I'm like, all right, on to the next one. I got to know the next study that everyone needs to hear about because this is crazy. So there's always a control group that just don't change what they do. So they carried on lifting weights. And then there was a group that for a period of time didn't actually lift weights, but visualized themselves lifting weights. And these were finger, finger weights and elbow weights. Um, what does and, that mean, finger weights? So elbows? literally like lifting something like this or doing this kind of exercise. So they're literally just, lifting something with the finger. Yeah, yeah. They were visualizing that. They, they were either, one group was doing it and oh, one group was okay. visualizing okay. it. Yeah. So basically what, what came out of that was that the group who only visualized doing it um, and didn't lift weights for that period of time 
still actually showed an increase in muscle mass. It was about half as much as the people who were actively lifting weights. Now, partly that's explained by the fact that when you rest, your muscles actually do grow and you do need to rest as part of building yeah. muscle. Um, but, you know, there's also a correlation between the fact that why do people who do decathlon visualize themselves doing all 10 different sports? They, they tend to do visualization for about an hour a day as well as their physical practice. So this was to separate out doing the physical practice from just visualizing it. And it was and it showed that they had um, they still had growth, not as much, but they still had growth. So that's nuts. <laughs> My um, we actually like a surgeon, but a brain surgeon friend of mine. Dad was our soccer coach and he like made us visualize when we were in like third grade, we were visualizing and we were always like, oh my God, Dr. McGonagall's like crazy. But he was always like, no, you got it. When you guys go home tonight, you need to like, this is a big thing in sports. Yeah. But the thing is visualization in sports psychology has been around since at least the 70s. So how do we apply it to the rest of our lives? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, if it can contribute to muscle growth and it can contribute to looking, feeling, you know, behaving younger... And it can contribute to actually making you walk more slowly. Then what else can it do? That's yeah. the real, you know, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? In terms of when you visualize a sporting goal, you are visualizing the actual activity, but you're also visualizing success. Yeah. So let's take that out of the sporting arena and think about visualizing success in an interview, in a giving a speech, um, in, you know, any business goal. It's, I, I guess, you know, what it, what it always comes down to for me is it's not going to harm you to visualize success in that area. It's not going to guarantee success. But what we see is that it does in, improve the, the possibility of achieving success in a goal that is over and above just completing the actions that you can to try to reach that goal. Yeah. And conversely, like if you're constantly ruminating on negative things. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. more likely to come true as well. Yeah, yeah, I have two questions for you. So one, I, okay, before Primal Kitchen, I was like a, I got hired at this company, Kavita. They also sold to kombucha company. Actually, you might appreciate this, but yeah. it's actually like a, like water kefir. So you okay. would even like it more because yeah, whatever, kefir, yeah. you know, kombucha's fermented in black tea. This was fermented in water. Yeah, yeah. But um, I was hired there by this friend who works for me now at Primal Kitchen. She's one of my best friends, Amanda. Um, and I remember thinking at the time, you know, I'm like, oh my gosh, it would be so cool if one day I could be a marketing consultant like Amanda. And then I did that. Yeah. And then I was like, oh my gosh, it would be so cool if one day I could be like a founder of a food company. And then I did that. Yeah. And then I was thinking, how great would it be if we could exit? I mean, we sold Primal Kitchen for $200 million. So yeah. then that happened. And then I just had this moment where I was like, holy shit, I need to be like careful yeah. about what I'm dreaming about yeah, because yeah. I might actually achieve it. So like if I'm just thinking how cool would it be to one day be a marketing consultant, you know, I mean, that was probably appropriate for me at the time. Right. Mm -hmm. But it just was for me like this interesting moment of like, what is going on here? And I got to be real careful because I keep achieving the what one day, wouldn't it be cool? So yeah. like, I don't know. I know you, you have, a, you are kind of like a well-known thought leader on manifestation as well. I'm curious your thoughts on just this exercise and what yeah. this means for us and so what we should be doing. I would say I'm a thought leader on how neuroplasticity underlies manifestation, okay. which is kind of different to how a lot of other people speak yeah. about manifestation. Yeah. And so in so neuroplasticity is the fact that your brain can change at any age, regardless of your mindset, um, 
and you know even if you feel like you're really stuck so you weren't particularly feeling like you're really stuck so you were able to dream big yeah but in my 20s I was feeling like I was really stuck okay yeah, yeah. so you know people will have been there and, and people it can go up and down as well sometimes you can feel like be careful what you wish for sometimes you can feel stuck again yeah um I don't know what I want what do I want to exactly. do all that yeah. yeah what I want to do with my life yeah, that's a and there is a little bit of a, you know, I'm just going to throw this one in there, that if you always think you know what you want, then you may not be opening up to possibilities mm-hmm. that you haven't thought of yet. So I like to do a bit of both. Interesting. I like that. Got to create po- the space. Cre- yeah. yeah. Leave, I always say leave a bit of space for yeah. magic. But the point of what you were doing is that neuroplasticity to action that in real life is a four step process. And the first step is raised awareness. So that is raising from non-conscious to conscious what it is that you want. And what really struck me about what you said is that you were very clear about what you wanted. Most people aren't. So, you know, they might say, I don't love my job. You know, I'm not really that happy in my relationship. I'm not really feeling like I'm the most healthy and fit that I could be. But they're not really clear on what they want, you know, to change. So... Raised awareness is 50% of the battle. Interesting. And you were already there. You know, you were thinking in that way that was like, wouldn't this be cool? And, you know, very specific on what it was. So then the stages that come after that are focused attention, which means that you notice opportunities to move yourself towards that goal. Deliberate practice, which means that you take those opportunities. And accountability, which is that, you know, you've either shared that goal with someone or you look back and say... I said I wanted to do that and I did or I didn't, you mm-hmm. know, and you're aware of that. So to notice opportunities, that obviously comes very easily on from knowing what you want. Yeah. To grasp opportunities, you've got to have the confidence and level of self-worth to take that step to grasp it. Yeah. Um, and I'm, you know, imagining from your story, but also just like from being with you and your energy that you you went out there and you like grabbed opportunities if you know if they were around yeah I'm almost like too opportunistic if we're gonna do like a psychiatry session here sometimes I have a problem like I want to do everything and sometimes you have to decide like just because it's an opportunity doesn't mean you have to do all the opportunities true but I think that the more common scenario is you missed an opportunity not you but someone missed an opportunity or they noticed it, but they were too scared to take it. Yeah, no, yeah. for sure. Yeah. So how do you build the confidence? Like, So what the way that I work with people on that is if there's a, a failure or a near miss, so if somebody said that they wanted to do something, but they didn't, I always say, that's okay, but if not, why not? So then we get to the thoughts behind why they didn't do something they could have done. And then you have to dig deeper than that and get to the underlying belief that drives that thought. So if the thought was, well, I think there were better people that were going to interview for that role than me, or things like that never work out for me, then you need to dig underneath that and say, what is it that you believe about yourself that makes you say those things? Once the person gets a real light bulb moment about the self-belief, then they they can create a positive affirmation that is the opposite of that belief. So, you know, that could be something like, I will be the best candidate for that role. Or um, I'm the kind of person that that's, that thing, that sort of thing works out for if I actually make the effort to go for it. So then every time you think that's not going to happen for me, you replace it with the positive affirmation. 
Now, that's actually a very ancient, like, Buddhist teaching. Mm -hmm. But neuroplasticity backs it up because you can't undo wiring that exists in your brain, but you can overwrite it with a new desired behavior, way of thinking, or belief. Interesting. Okay, so I'm going a little back here, but when you say, like, 50% of the battle is kind of just knowing what you want to be Mm -hmm. clear about that, what if you're not clear? Like, I have a big decision in my life to make, right? Mm-hmm. Like, in just in general right now. And I am, like, I'm struggling with some of these, like, big decisions. Like, I feel like I have historically been clear and I'm not. Like, how do you get clear? Um, do you want to share the actual example or not? You don't yeah, have to. I can share. I can totally share. So we, this is, it, it. we move all the time, my husband and I. Like, we've moved our family to, like, San Diego. We moved to Florida during COVID. We came back to L.A. We're just, like... I'm nomadic. Yeah. I like went to camp for eight weeks when I was eight years old and traveled. I lived in South America for two years after college. I've traveled and lived in Australia. I've been to Europe. I like love moving. It's not stressful for me. Same. We kind of just like love it. We yeah. don't mind. But then part of me, I'm like talking to you thinking like some, I have an inner voice that's like, you're great. Like you're crazy. Why do you keep moving? You're never happy anywhere. But really I am like, mm. I'm actually fine. Mm. I just, I'm like, oh, that'd be fun to try or that would be fun to try. And there's, so we're debating like my, and maybe I'm putting too much pressure on myself, but my oldest is about to enter kindergarten next year. And we like where we are, but we know we don't want to stay there. It's like, it's too far. Like you, yeah. I came to meet you today because it's too far in LA to do things. So you, you already know. And there's a small community near us with like three different towns we could live in. And we like actually have an offer signed in our email on like, we've countered and we've come to a negotiation on this piece of property that yeah. we could build like the dream house and it's a place we totally want to live but there's this community of people we have in the other town so we're like do we live where we want to live or do we go where we already have the friends and we like can't decide we're just like people are like are you guys gonna like decide we're like I don't know maybe we'll talk about it tonight maybe tomorrow and it's like been hanging over my head for like years like two years okay this where should I live thing and I move and then I'm like maybe I was telling my therapist who's also Buddhist triathlete he's like 80 I've been seeing him for 15 years he married my husband and I he's amazing David Roadhouse but I was telling him the other day I'm like David I just like think something's wrong with me and he like started dying laughing he's like Morgan you are like too funny but anyway so that's what I mean and I'm just like how do I get clear how do I get clear so I'm gonna give you a few specifics because I think we can always talk generally about this, but I feel like more gold might come out of if I actually try to like okay, you know, dig yeah. into this with you. So the first thing I would say if you were my client is that don't underestimate how stressful it is having three kids under the age of five. Yeah. And, you know, running a, a full time like business and podcast and everything else that you do. And what's been looming for you as a former nomad and, and you're talking like back to eight years old after college. Camp like, for yeah. eight weeks, yeah. eight years old, study abroad. So that's yeah. that's your identity. That's That's been there like for as, almost as long as you've been conscious. Yeah. But with a five-year-old who's about to go to kindergarten, that's going to change. Yeah. And that is scary for you. Yeah. That's why you can't decide. Yeah, because it's like a big commitment. Yeah, I want to be somewhere it. where he yeah. is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> totally why I can't decide. Because <laughs> I can't just move again in two years. I know. Yeah. I know. Yeah. And so the solution in more generic terms, because I've had so many examples like this, is you've just got to make a decision and then make it work. Yeah. Because there is no right decision. Yeah. That whatever decision you make as a family, you have to make it work. Then it turns out to be the right decision. Yeah. If you make it and then you say, oh, no, we went to the different town and we're not near any of our friends. And now we really regret that. Then then it was a bad decision. Then that's yeah. my reality. 
Well, yeah. no, but but what you can choose to say, we can still be friends with those people, but we'll also make new friends in our new day, yeah. and that will be great. So it's it's how you frame the consequence of your decision yeah. that makes it the right decision or not. Yeah. There is there no, is going to be no yeah, way. We're exactly. going to move in the other place and be like, oh, but we really like the other town more. Yeah. So like, and I just stuck need... with our friends. We're never making <laughs> no, I mean, I love yeah, our friends. But yeah, no, that's yeah. very good advice. It's back to like the mindset. Yeah. 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 Thank you for that <laughs> unprompted therapy session that I really yeah. needed today. <laughs> the real estate agent is going to be so happy I interviewed you today. He's going to be like, oh, finally, they'll make a decision. Um, okay. I did this thing also, and maybe I I just did, I used to like stress falling asleep at night. You would lay in bed. I feel like, you know, this is a big thing for people, right? Like sleep. I feel like we've put so much pressure on sleep that almost it's like having an, the opposite effect. Mm. I don't know. Like there's so much like if you don't have good sleep, you're tracking your sleep, wearing my aura ring, you know, the whole thing. It's especially hard with little kids. But even when I was little, like I feel like I always, I had a hard time falling asleep. I don't have a hard time falling asleep anymore. But what I used to do when I was falling asleep and I, I couldn't fall asleep. I would like think of my perfect day or like imagine my life in the future. And I would, I didn't realize what I was doing was kind of like a manifestation or visualization exercise. Um, But is there any like science behind this stuff? Oh, absolutely. So as you were saying that, I was thinking, wow, you're a real big natural visualization, visualizer and manifester. And so I actually, for people who aren't naturally like that, Um, I advise people to make what was formerly known as a vision board, but I call it an action board because I always say you can't just create a fantasy and daydream about it and not do anything, you know, to make it happen. So I ask people to place this action board next to their bed so that they it's the first thing you see in the morning and the last thing you see at night, because the states between being awake and falling asleep and being asleep and waking up are called the hypnagogic and hypnopompic states. And they are states where your subconscious is very impressionable. Um, So there's a psychological phenomenon called the Tetris effect, which is based on the generation of people that played Tetris on a Game Boy when they were in bed as a child. And then when they had to put the Game Boy down and go to sleep, they could still see the bricks falling, you know, in their mind's eye. So that's an example of how the thing that you look at last can create an impression on your brain whilst you're asleep overnight. And so... When you prime your brain like that, the next day when you're walking around, you're more likely to notice potential, you know, opportunities to move you closer to that goal. It's like when you buy a new car, suddenly you see exactly the oh my car God. everywhere. It, everywhere. Yeah. yeah. You're shopping for the car and you're like, everyone has one. It's like every third car in the highway, but it's really not. It's just what you, what you, what you notice. Yeah. Yeah. So fascinating. Okay. Talk to me about like your key three things for high performers for like happiness. Sleep. Sleep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, no pressure. <laughs> ideally, 8 hours and 15 minutes of sleep per night. That's in population norms. Okay, that is so specific. Tell me why 8 hours and 15 minutes. Well, so in population norms, which is like most people, you know, without outliers at either yeah. end, 8 hours and 15 minutes seems to be ideal. Okay. More than that is depressogenic, so it can actually lower your mood. So we don't want to be sleeping too much. But less than 8 hours means that the cleansing process that takes place in your brain overnight doesn't have enough time to finish its job. So that's why it can be so specific. Okay. Um, And we know that regular sleep and wake times are really important. So within an hour, going to bed and waking up at the same time, that leads to the best quality and length of sleep that you can get. And 
you know, I cannot emphasize how important sleep is for performance, energy, happiness, everything. everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because you said happiness and, and, you know, we'll cover that as like, you know, being happy in your social family situation yeah. and, you know, happy in work, everything. Um, I'm going to say, so to me, the three are sleep, time in nature has been proven, particularly since the pandemic, as so crucial to your mental health, your physical health and your longevity. Um, and, you know, it's not just a nice to have, it's depending on where you live, you may or may not be surrounded by nature. So particularly if you're not, it's important to, you know, try to get to a source of water or trees. We know that trees and plants, some more than others, secrete chemicals called phytoncides that boost your immune system. So if you, when you walk past these trees, the chemicals that come out of them actually cause an increase in the release of natural killer cells in your immune system, which eat up the minor infections and even cancerous cells that proliferate through our body on a day-to-day basis. That's crazy. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Like, can, do I need these in my house? Can I put these for You house? can have them in your house. What kind yeah. are we talking here? Um, so I actually don't remember all of them off by heart, but I know that cedars and cypresses and lime trees were on the list. There's more. Yeah. So either having a, you know, a garden, even if you have a terrace, having potted plants and having plants in your house as well helps. But it's much better to get out Outside. into nature okay. if you can. And then the third one, um, and this is all the latest research. So this is on top of the obvious things like eat healthily and drink enough water. Right, and exercise and all yeah. that. Yeah. Um, is having a purpose that transcends yourself. So, you know, you've mentioned having kids and, you know, having a business that you love and a podcast that you love. But all of those things, they still give you some personal yeah. gain. So finding something that is more altruistic but, you know, really like feeds your soul um, and doesn't necessarily give you a material reward. Those are the top three things that really like optimize someone's life. Yeah. Yeah. So like, give me some examples of those things. So volunteering is one of those things. Um, So in volunteering, you know, that can be anything from, it can actually be anything from like donating money to a charity, but actually giving your time. So maybe helping an elderly neighbor with their groceries or, um, you know, doing something in the arts that benefits people, maybe that don't get access to it. Um, yeah, even just like phoning up a friend and checking yeah. out they're okay, you know. And, Anything yeah. you're doing that's not like just for your yeah. own personal yeah. intrinsic. Yeah. yeah. You're like, okay, I'm going to tell you all the ways you're very self-absorbed, Morgan. No, <laughs> just kidding. You know, having compassion. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I it's, love it. you know, I, yeah, of course, mo- mostly we are doing things that are, you know, beneficial to self, but this kind of something that is not directly beneficial to yourself actually benefits you so much that it's it's kind of like good to do it for that reason too. Yeah. I saw, this is, I love that very much. I saw this, um, I heard this clip. I don't know if there's any validity to this, but it was some psychiatrist or some scientist or someone said that they're, they asked, like, what do you think is more important, thinking positively or eliminating negative thinking? And they had, like, some science to back up the fact that eliminating negative thinking was actually almost more important than focusing on thinking positive. We're, we're in America. We're, like, the land of, like... Positive thinking. Right? Yeah. I mean, kind of. I mean, yeah. we're not certainly the land of living that way, but I would feel like we're very... We're known as, like, 
being optimistic, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's warranted or not. So what do you think about that? Do you think one's more important than the other? Um, so having a positive outlook is really important, but it's harder to not focus on negatives. That's a very natural gearing for our brain. Yeah. It's a survival mechanism. Right. From, you know, millennia ago. It's called loss avoidance or loss aversion. And in behavioral economics, the clearest example of that is that when you came here to meet me, if you dropped $20 out of your pocket in the parking lot, even though, you know, it's not a massive amount, you would just like, you'd say, oh, yeah, how, why did I do that? It was such a dumb thing to do. And you might even send our friend from Florida back to the parking lot to see if he could find it. Um, but equally... Poor Ryan. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why this Florida things are coming. It's really coming up, yeah. yeah. Um, but if you, if on your way here you actually just saw $20 like lying in the parking lot and you picked it up, you'd have kind of forgotten. You, you know, you might keep it, you might give it to a homeless person, but you'd forget about that pretty right. quickly. We, we dwell on the negatives oh, much we, more. Oh, yeah. So actually being able to turn those around a bit more would be more powerful in terms of benefits to your brain but it's definitely harder to do interesting yeah okay you mentioned art I know this is like near and dear for you so talk to us about like the science behind art um so I'll relate it back to nature and and I want to you know it to cover all creativity so it could be like art dance music okay yeah um so you and I might have different taste in art or music but nature is the palette that humanity has existed in forever. So we all find it pleasing. It lowers our blood pressure. It lowers yeah. our heart rate, our breathing rate. Um, and it is a thing of beauty. Yeah. So basically, when we perceive something of beauty, it has a beneficial effect on our brain and our nervous system. And so there's two types of art, art um, and that's making and beholding. So you can behold beauty by, you know, seeing nature, going to the theatre, listening to music, reading a novel. But you're making art when you draw, paint, sing, hum, right. chant, write, okay. dance. Um, and you don't have to be good at it, but doing it is really beneficial. So particularly if you're kind of self-conscious, maybe because you think, oh, I'm not, you know, I don't have rhythm or I'm not a good, you know, good at sketching or something. Just do it privately. Just, you know, do it by yourself, for yourself. Um, the science of how much it benefits us is incredible. I mean, there's a whole book now called Your Your Brain on Art, written by um, two people, Ivy Ross, who's the head of product design at Google. She used to be at Mattel. And Susan Magsamen, who is um, faculty at the Center for Neuroaesthetics at Johns Hopkins. So like, really, you know, smart people. Um done lots of studies and <laughs> okay sorry done lots of studies so um you know demonstrating the importance of having various forms of art in our life whether we're doing it ourselves or just having it around us yeah yeah I just like it makes me depressed to think like it's like coming out of school curriculum like just this stuff going on in schools I cannot like wrestle with this I'm struggling I mean maybe it's the mom thing but I'm just like ah, yeah. Oh. yeah I mean it's depressing what do I do? What got, do you, you do? Know, you just got to do extra activities. Yeah, um, which means it puts all the pressure on, you know, onto the parents. And, and yeah, I think what depresses me is if people aren't aware of neuroaesthetics, which is now a field, which is like the importance of beauty on your brain. Yeah. And, you know, indulging in art and creativity. If that's being taken out of school, 
then if parents don't know about it or don't have the bandwidth to like, you know, help yeah. their children to do Yeah, that. I mean, I can handle the extracurricular, but like think of the millions of people that can't. I know. It's so depressing to me. But, you know, a really great thing for kids is colouring in mandalas. So just, you know, even if you have to draw it out on a piece of paper, yeah. just let them colour it in. Yeah. Um, and photocopy it, like, you know, ten times. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And just, like, humming, you know, having music on in the background, maybe when you're cooking and, like, encouraging your children to sing along or hum. Yeah. My husband puts music on every morning. God bless him because I'm, like... He's great. Anyway, um, I love it. Okay, I am curious your thoughts on death and like how you wrestle with death. If you're afraid of it, like just you're a spiritual person. So I, I, don't, I don't ask this to a lot of people, but I do to like spiritual people that I'm curious what they think. Yeah, um, because as I mentioned earlier, I was brought up in a Hindu culture. Yeah. You know, I was brought up with the concept of reincarnation. And definitely throughout my life, that has been of comfort. Um, yeah. You know, thinking that, believing that when somebody physically dies from this material plane they don't disappear forever that you know that they can potentially be reborn yeah um it's comforting and then of course you get to a certain age where you actually start losing people and you start to question those beliefs yeah so I have delved into this I had um this amazing guy on the podcast um, his area of research is terminal lucidity, which is when people with a brain injury or a degeneration of the brain, so Alzheimer's, other types of dementia, stroke, etc., um, who, you know, lose their memory, their consciousness, don't recognize their own children, don't remember that they had children, suddenly become lucid again towards the end of their life and remember their children's names, speak to them absolutely like in that warm parental way that they always did. Unfortunately, that state usually comes from one hour to one day before death. But it does show that where we thought that ability was completely lost in the brain, it must be somewhere because it can come back. Yeah. And then, so that was Dr. Alexander Bathiani. Dr. Bruce Grayson um, has done decades of research on near-death experiences. Um, and he wasn't a spiritual person at all. He's a psychiatrist at University of Virginia and actually sort of anecdotally started hearing people saying that they had like floated out of their body and seen him talking to their relatives and things like that. And, you know, 50 years ago, there were hardly any documented cases of this. Now there are thousands, tens of thousands. So, um, you know, it's being looked at in a more scientific way, which yeah. I think is great. Um, Dr. Jim Tucker, also at University of Virginia, another psychiatrist, looks at past life memories in children. Um, and there's something called mind sight which is where people who've been blind their whole life have a near-death experience and they can see so all this tells us really is that there are aspects of our consciousness that can exist in the absence of the physical neurons and chemicals and electrical signals being there and so that can lead us to a strong impression that our consciousness can exist even beyond physical death. It, that cannot be proven. But the scientists that I know that work in that area and through my own personal experience, it's very exciting to think that we may be moving towards like being more able to say that that is, is possible. And I think, you know, especially after the pandemic, but obviously throughout life, where people have experienced actual loss through death or breakdown of relationship or loss of connection to self, these ancient wisdoms, you know, these beliefs like reincarnation and past lives, the fact that they're being even looked into 
by scientists and physicians, I think is really comforting. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big step. Yeah. It's cool. So you're not like scared of death. Most humans are. So yeah. that is a condition of human life. I, I think I'm probably one of the lucky ones that is less scared of it yeah. than the average person. Um, you know, what I've learned from my research is that to not think about death as that last, you know, short period of your life, but to think about death in terms of how you want to live your life. Yeah. And that if you have a purpose that transcends yourself, if you are compassionate and kind and merciful as many times as you can be in your life you're going to have a lot less to regret when you're on your deathbed. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it does kind of, the idea of death gives like living purpose, right? I mean, mm. what would we really be doing if yeah. we didn't have deaths? It's very interesting. I asked David, my like 80-year-old Buddhist therapist about this, and he was like, he's like, well, what if this is the dream? You know, he's like, no, I don't even think about it. He's like, what if? And I was like, God, I just love that. I, I need more of that in my life. Um, So interesting. Okay, so... What would you say, we didn't talk much about meditation. Mm -hmm. Are you a big meditator? Oh, interestingly, not anymore. So okay. I have been a big meditator. I'm so glad I asked you this now then. Okay. Well, although it's for a reason. Okay. So, so I, you know, used to, I have, I've had a yoga and meditation practice for over 20 years. Okay. What happened for me in the pandemic is this, this happened naturally. And then I found out the research that is, backs it up. It's amazing is that when you meditate, let's say you do 10 minutes, 20 minutes, even an hour, then for one hour of your day, you're being mindful. And for 23 hours of your day, you're living your regular life. Mm -hmm. Once you merge those things, you don't need to sit in meditation. When you live 24 hours a day, trying to be mindful, so you do mindful walking, mindful chopping up of your vegetables, mindful cooking. Like I said, you know, my parents ingrained in me from a, a child you have to give gratitude before you take your first bite of food that immediately slows down how quickly you eat yeah um and means that at least two or three times a day you are expressing gratitude yeah um and attention is a really important one so with kids particularly it's very easy to find that your kids are talking to you and you're half listening but you're also scrolling on your phone or yeah. you're thinking about work if you can Give mindful attention to your kids. And with kids, all you have to do is the number of minutes per day for their age. So with your five-year-old, you only have to put your phone down for five minutes and absolutely focus on your child and what they're saying to you. That's enough for their mental health. And it also means that you're paying mindful attention for yeah. that period of time. The more you can bring in things like that, I, I sort of think of it as a patchwork quilt. Like, where are the little patches that you're bringing mindfulness throughout your life? Day. Yeah, yeah. I'm like on this aura ring thing, but I bet they just launched like a new feature where they track your heart rate variability during the day. They used to only like give a report once in the morning. And mm -hmm. it like, who knows if, you know, it can be an indicator of stress, right? Like mm -hmm. you can see your heart rate variability goes mm -hmm. down. You might be more stressed, but it's interesting to see just, I, I had that realization. I'm like, gosh, if I just like, I wake up in the morning and I'm not stressed. If I meditated in the morning and then I just go about my stressful day, what did I really do for myself, right? Like, And also, how many things can you do first thing in the morning? It's no. awesome. Meditate first thing in the no. morning. No, drink your lemon water, yeah, do your intermittent fasting. Uh, yeah, work out yeah. in a fasted state, do your journal. Yeah, I mean, forget it. No, I wake up and, like, I'm lucky if I can even make it to an 8 o'clock meeting on time with the kids and, you know, yeah. 
But yeah, so that is interesting. When you say bring mindfulness into just like everyday activities, like give me an example, like chopping your vegetables, what would that look like to be like truly mindful chopping your vegetables? So, so like I said, in the pandemic, when there was no boundary between work and home, I used the vegetable chopping as my time to say, okay, I've finished work now and I'm moving into house mode. So, uh, you know, I'll be honest, sometimes I listen to a podcast at that time, but that's not, multitasking is not mindful. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, it. so it's just like really being present in the one thing yeah, you're doing. Yeah. And, you know, if you go for a nature walk, equally a lot of people say, oh, I listen to podcasts when I do that. But if I'm doing a nature walk, I'm literally like... In, in nature. Yeah. Um, and looking at flowers and petals and mushrooms and leaves yeah. and listening to birdsong. And, um, you know, I, I do think paying attention to the people you love is a really important one. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, m- you know, mindful cooking as well. Just the stirring, the smell. Totally. Um, when I chop my vegetables, I think about the size of the piece of food that someone's going to have to put into their mouth. So, you know, it's all very... And, and you know, the different colours of the yeah. things that I'm choosing... And then with the eating, um, obviously giving the gratitude before, eating slowly, like, you know, really chewing it quite yeah. a few times, not having a television on or your phone next to you. Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of being present with being each activity. Yeah. All day. Well, in bursts. <laughs> no, yeah. At it's least not in bursts yeah, throughout the yeah, day. Yeah. As it's, much as you can yeah. for, for certain things. Yeah. It's, it's not, I'm definitely not advocating that anyone tries to, or pretending that I am doing that 24 seven, but I'm trying to bring it into my day as much as possible. And do you, have you noticed like a positive shift for you versus when you were doing it, practice before? Definitely. So, so during the pandemic, you know, I, I lived like that a lot more. Yeah. I have to admit that since the pandemic and, you know, being back to like working. Traveling. Yeah. Yeah. It's not the same, but you know, at least I got a taste of that and I know that that's what life can be like. And maybe I can bring that more into my weekends yeah. or the holidays. Um, so funnily enough, I then stumbled across the research, which actually said that that is a higher evolution of mindfulness. It's, you know, when you're separating mindfulness from your regular life, that's quite a low level of being mindful. But when you're integrating it into your life, love that's that. the next evolution. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. I loved, I could talk to you forever. Okay. I'm going to ask you my last question. I ask everyone this, but what's something most people don't know about you? <laughs> um, oh my goodness. Um, do you know Tim Spector from Zoe? He, I love him. Yeah, I, when you said 30 Vegetables Day, he was on the podcast like two years ago with me. And he like told me he got in some like plane crash. And I was like, God, what? Oh, wow. Like he had okay. some helicopter or plane crash. I was like, this is crazy. People tell me crazy things. Yeah. I'm just curious. Like, I'm what's quite transparent. I don't know if I can think of a crazy Well, thing. just like not I mean, even crazy, but just something most people don't know. Like something from your childhood or your favorite something. I don't know. It could be anything. I wanted to be an actress. Okay, that's out yeah. there like we wouldn't have guessed that I really wanted to be an actress and I was you know my English teacher said you're so talented you should read English at Oxford you should go to RADA I came home I told my parents and my father said over my dead body yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah so you know the podcast and the tv show yeah it's it's a you kind of got it but you got it out in a I'm still I, I, I'm still working on it yeah yeah in a meaningful way well I love that I don't it seems like you you don't have a lot to work on, but it was so glorious to meet you. Okay, tell everyone where they can find you and about your podcast. We didn't get to talk a lot about it. And you have a book, a new book that came out recently. No. No. Okay. <laughs> but your original book. Original, yeah. Yeah. But you, you're not having another well, book because you're doing your podcast. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. One thing that people don't but know. But no, stop <laughs> asking me to write another book. <laughs> you no. Know, um, I've actually written three books. So I wrote, co-wrote An Attitude for Acting and I co-wrote Neuroscience for Leadership. 
But The Source, The Secrets of the Universe, The Science of the Brain, is my latest book that I wrote by myself, which is the one that merges science and spirituality. Um, I'm most active on Instagram at Dr. Tara Swart, so D-R-T-A-R-A-S-W-A-R-T. And my podcast is called Reinvent Yourself with Dr. Tara. And season two is about applying ancient wisdom to modern life. I love it. Thank you so much. This is wonderful. Thank you. 